chapter 3 this morning. Acts chapter 3. I think I'm on. There we go. Uh, Acts chapter 3, as we continue in our time looking through uh, this letter. Uh, as you're turning to Acts chapter 3, uh, perhaps you've heard the phrase, the haves and the have-nots. We might think that this is a modern thought, that there were differences in socioeconomic classes, that there were uh, differences uh, solely based on how you worked, what you did, the amount of money that you had, perhaps your affiliation with the organization. Uh, that's not new. That is very, very old. And we'll see that in Acts chapter 3, we see that there is this difference between the haves and the have-nots. And rather than to just say which one's better, being honest, they're both equally as bad. But that we would look and be able to see with eyes of faith that if you don't have Jesus, that's all that matters. That whether you have or have not on earth. If you don't have Jesus, you don't have anything. I want to give you our sermon in a sentence or our main point, so to speak, from Acts chapter 3, and then we'll get into the text. It's miracles may bring spectators, but faith alone in Christ alone saves needy and self-righteous sinners. Miracles may bring spectators, but faith alone, in Christ alone, saves needy and self-righteous sinners. So whether you think you are a have, and you are self-righteous, or whether you are a have-not, and you feel like you are perhaps this beggar in Acts 3, there is grace afforded to us all that Christ and faith in His name saves both needy and self-righteous. We'll see this progression in three ways. First, we'll see a beggar healed in verses 1 through 8. A beggar healed. Secondly, we'll see what is the response of this healing. What do spectators see and think about when this beggar is healed? And thirdly and finally, we'll turn to Peter's sermon. Verses 12 through 26. So a beggar healed, response to the healing, and Peter's sermon. First, a beggar healed. I want to read verses 1 through 8 of Acts chapter 3. I'd ask if you're willing and able to stand in honor of the reading of God's word. Acts chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom they had laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver or gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up 
and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. May the Lord receive honor in the reading of his word. You may be seated. A beggar healed. Luke records that as Peter and John are walking to the temple to fulfill their ritual of of worship, they see this man who has been lame at birth, sitting at this gate called Beautiful. And what he's doing is he's asking for alms. We might not think that we ask for alms in modern day America, but we, especially if you've ever been a child, you ask for alms all the time. Mom, dad, will you give me some alms? Alms are the the ancient equivalent of what money is today. So you think of those who would ask for money on the street corner. Certainly the child asking his parents is different than what is going on here. But here, this man who's lame at birth stands outside, sits outside, sits outside the gate entering into the temple, and he's asking for money, for he was lame. He was poor. He was desperate. Think of the potential of this person. Think of what his state would be what he might be able to do. What are his prospects? They're not high. In the eyes of this world, and perhaps even in the eyes of first century Israelites, they're not good at all. For even the law of God in Leviticus chapter 21 says that such a person cannot even enter into the temple. Think of another story of a healing where Jesus heals a blind man. And do you remember what the people said, what the Pharisees said? They said, whose sin is it that made you blind, yours or your parents? There was an understanding that a physical disformity was caused because of sin. A person like this would be unclean. A person like this could not enter the temple. It was against the religious law. So think of This man's prospects. Yearning to be with God's people. Yearning to be in the temple to worship. And yet, day after day, he sits outside the temple, outside of the presence of God. And so, he asks Peter and John for money. What would Peter's response be? Would Peter's own self-righteousness cause him to look with condemnation? No. Verse 6, Peter tells this man, I have no silver and gold. Think of how that would have resonated on this man's ears. What he wants most is to be able to provide food for his next meal. And yet Peter says, I have no provision for that. I have no silver and I have no gold. But 
What I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. I hope your mind and heart are going to these other healings of Jesus' ministry. We think of the friends who lowered the paralytic down into the home by the roof. He doesn't go hoping that he'll be uh, made new. He hopes that his physical state will be changed. But what does Jesus say? He provides for him eternal life. Not because of this man in any shape, form, or fashion. Not because Jesus looked at him as this weakling that needed to have this ticket of eternal life. But he saves him because of his grace and the faith of this man. In some ways, even the faith of his friends. It's faith. So Peter, likewise, gives to this lame man something he doesn't ask for, but he gives him what he has. Jesus. He gives him Jesus. Quick aside, what can a small church with a budget in the red give to a world in need? We don't have silver or gold, and actually we do. But what do we have? We have Jesus. We have the hope of eternal life through the gospel of Christ that says all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. We have Jesus. Likewise, Peter responds, I don't have silver, I don't have gold, but I have Jesus. And in his name, rise and walk. Peter, look at these three progressions in this healing. Who is it that gives this man healing? It's a trick question because Peter attributes the healing to another. But in this sense, when we think about who raised Lazarus from the dead, who heals the paralytic, who heals the blind man, who physically heals this lame person, who pronounces healing over him? Peter. There is a change in the progression that Jesus' ministry doesn't stop when he ascends into heaven. It continues through his apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, Peter's going to go on and say, we didn't do this. It's not because I'm an apostle. It's not because I have this great piety or this great spiritual connection with God. Jesus is the one who does it. Jesus operating through his apostles, through his people under the power of the Holy Spirit. Makes this happen. Peter gives. What does Peter give? Part two. Peter gives him Jesus. Peter gives him Jesus. Friends, don't ever feel as if giving someone Jesus is trite or is of no value. For if you've found the value of Christ through eternal life in his son, it is of ultimate value. Peter gives this man Jesus. And thirdly, what Peter doesn't give him is he doesn't give him monetarily. One theologian and pastor here in Louisville by the name of Brian Vickers writes in his commentary, the man no doubt expects money, but what he receives is so much more. He does not need money primarily. He needs Jesus. Peter's gift to the lame man is Jesus. 
friends, when we see that our ultimate need is not money, it is not shelter, it is not food, it is not anything on those pyramid of needs. What we need most and what a dying world needs most is they need Jesus. They need eternal life through Jesus Christ. And praise be to God who sent His Son. We don't have to point to something that's far off or something that might or might not be reality. We point to Jesus. Just as Peter will do in his sermon. This healing is not merely spiritual. It's also physical. For the man's response to this miraculous healing is that he's able to walk. Remember when Jesus again questioned by the Pharisees and the the leaders and the chief priests, and he responds to them and says, which is easier for me to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise and walk? Because one can be seen with eyes. The The other can only be seen with eyes of faith. But here, when Peter says, rise and walk in the name of Jesus, he grabs him by the hand, he pulls him up, and it says this man jumps up. He jumps up and leaping. He stood and began to walk. And he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Listen to another author by the name of Patrick Schreiner. He says, this lame man was socially and physically blemished. Now he's welcomed. He was spatially cut off from the people of God. Now he's able to enter the temple. He was economically destitute. I think that is high talk for he was very poor. He was economically destitute. Now he has received riches from the true king. What is your state this morning? Are you crying out for God's mercy on you? Are you praising him for the mercy he's already showered on you in Christ? Or are you crying out for his blessing? Friends, Jesus came to save Jesus came to free captives. Jesus came to heal the sick. Jesus, earlier, Luke writes in his gospel, chapter 7, verse 22, that when Jesus pronounces this healing, he says, go and tell them the blind see and the lame walk because of him. Because of his power and his ministry, affirming to them the prophet Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 35, verse 6, saying that on that day when the servant of the Lord comes, he will cause these things to happen. The blind will see, the lame will walk. Jesus says, This day has come. The reality is that we're all beggars, it's just whether we know it or not. We are all beggars. What a miracle. What a miracle, this healing. Not only for this man, but also for those who walked by. How will they respond? Those 
Israelites, those Jews going to the temple, how will they respond to such a healing? Progression to the response to the healing. We see in verses 9 through 11 that when all of the people saw, let me read it, and all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. You see, when Jesus does a miracle in somebody's life, people see it. It doesn't have to just be the healing of being able to go from being lame to being able to walk, but this is the particular healing in which we find ourselves. That when those who see this man, who perhaps have seen him day after day as they go into the temple, they perhaps even knew his name, maybe even out of their own benevolent hearts, they've given him alms as they've entered, perhaps even just to appease him for a time. But when they see him walking into the temple with them, think of what that would have done in their own minds. Wait, that's Joe. Why is Joe in the pew across from me? I don't think they had pews in the temple. But what? And he's standing up. He's praising God. He's walking from his spot into the temple. And yet they stop there. Not only why is he in the temple, they begin to ask, how did this happen? They have wonder and amazement. This wonder and amazement characterizes the Israelites. I shouldn't have written my sermon notes in cursive. Imagine with me, you're going to church one Sunday morning. And surprisingly, a great miracle happens. Great miracle happens. You may be intrigued, but what will it cause you to do? Right? We can be stirred by emotions. We talked about it in Sunday school. We can be stirred by the next blockbuster hit. Wow, that was incredible. But what's it going to cause you to do? Probably nothing. It's similar for these Israelites. They see the miracle. They don't really attribute it to anyone and they don't do anything about it. Schreiner again comments and says that their awe and amazement does not mean that the observers believed in Jesus. Think about the response of the man who's healed. He leaps up and he begins to walk and he goes to the temple. What? What's the characteristic that Luke points out? Praising God. When the response of the Israelites is, they saw, they had wonder, and were filled with amazement. Because the man was praising God. They didn't praise God. Let me go back to Schreiner. This does not mean the observers believed in Jesus. Peter's sermon was therefore needed to persuade them of the significance of this event. Awe and astonishment are not enough, but they can lead to 
repentance. In summary, the Israelites' response to this miracle never goes Godward. They never attribute the healing to God. They never attribute this with any eternal significance of what this Son, the Messiah, Jesus Christ, has done. In fact, as Peter begins his sermon, he begins with a defense. He defers the attention from himself and the other apostles, and he puts it precisely where it is intended to be. On Christ. Peter's sermon, verses 11 through 26. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of all. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance, as did also the rulers. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Peter gives this defense. He deflects this act being done through him. That it's in it's by faith. By faith in Christ, that this work is done. And so, he then points them to this servant. Not as a new servant, not as one who was not foretold of, not as one who was not prophesied about, but as the answer, as the biblically, scripturally pointed to Messiah. That this Jesus is the one that our God the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers. Why Peter would address them like that is because he knows who he's talking to. These are the Israelites of the Israelites. They are in the temple. They knew exactly what Leviticus 21 said. They know the law backwards and forwards. Yet, they missed the point about Jesus. They are self-righteous. And Peter doesn't just defend himself. He goes on the offensive and he makes bold accusations. Peter preaches a sermon that I think many pastors would want to preach. Think about all of the first person references Peter uses. You, 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 you. Peter, in an authoritative sense, continues to say, you did this. You are not blameless. You are not sinless in all of this activity. You are guilty. Friends, the same is true of us. The same is true of us. 
Though removed 2,000 years, we are guilty. We are sinful. And the only hope for us is the only hope for the beggar, for the self-righteous in our text. It's Jesus. Faith in his name. Peter identifies, you did this. You gave him up. You freed a murderer when Jesus would have been released. You are guilty. Peter doesn't just let them sit in their own filthy clothing. Gives them a call to action. Every good sermon has a call to action. We've seen this call to action already in the time that we've been in the book of Acts. The response when the Spirit comes and the people who see it are like, what should we do? Peter once again says, repent and be baptized. What is the call to action for the self-righteous Israelites in our text? Verse 19, repent, therefore. Friends, whether we're self-righteous, whether we're beggars, whether we're guilty, whether we're sinful, there's hope. There's a call to action to repent. Let me read verses 19 through the rest of the chapter. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of His holy prophets long ago. Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who've spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your father, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your Wickedness. The call to action is to repent. But in this call to action, there's a threefold promise that if you repent, this will happen for you. This is the miracle of conversion. This is the miracle of justification that by faith in Christ, here's the threefold progression our sins are forgiven, that a time of refreshing would come. And the third, Christ comes to you. In Christ, our sins are forgiven. He takes them on Himself as a perfect, spotless sacrifice. You see, these self-righteous Israelites continue to go to the temple under the old covenant laws and rituals. They were going under the sacrifices of lambs and goats and bulls. And they've yet to understand it's all about Jesus that I can truly come and worship the God of my fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, only through this blessed seed, Jesus. 
Our sins are forgiven in Christ. A time of refreshing would come. Think about how different your life is now in Christ than it was apart from Him. Think about all of the tumultuous things that the last three, four, five, 20 years of your life have held and how at each juncture Christ has held you fast. And third, this promise of Christ coming. Christ coming. There's a end times promise that not only will Christ be with you presently as He is with us by indwelling and imparting to us His Spirit, but there is coming a time where He will come and fulfill all of the promises for all of the promises are yes and amen in Christ. But Peter doesn't just go from repent and be baptized and these good things will happen to you. He gives a stark warning in verses 22 through 26. Calling those who go and worship under the blood of the old covenant to worship in the blood of the new. By saying in part and in whole, don't neglect the Son. Don't neglect God's servant, Jesus. For every soul, verse 23, who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And then Peter concludes his sermon in verse 26. Again, pointing the hearers to the work of this servant Jesus. By saying, God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first. To bless you. By turning every one of you from your wickedness. He leaves him with a choice. Blessings in the servant, Jesus. Or curses that all who do not listen shall be destroyed. Friends, this is the reality. We stand apart from Christ condemned, guilty, sinful. Our verdict is rendered. But in Christ, there's hope. There's hope that in Him alone, by faith in Him alone, there's hope both to the beggar and to the self-righteous. That's what's promised here. What good news. First, application. In the gospel, there is hope for all. Have I said that enough times? In the gospel, there's hope for all. To all who call on the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel gives hope to all people. The panhandlers, the beggars, the self-righteous, those that our society deems unsavable. The gospel gives hope for all. And we don't have to be left to our own devices of what clever way, what clever way of communicating the gospel do I need to rely on? Just give them Jesus. Just give them Jesus, for it's in this good news that there is hope for all. Give them Jesus. Secondly, from our text, we see that a heart truly transformed by Jesus 
praises him with joy and gladness. Look at the counter. We can't see yet the counter or the the response of the self-righteous, but we'll get there next week. It's not good, by the way. But the response of the beggar, he doesn't continue to sit in his spot and lament and sour in bitterness. But what does he do? He goes. By faith, he goes. He walks to the temple. He leaps up for joy and he worships Jesus with joy and gladness. A heart truly transformed by Jesus praises him with joy and gladness. So whether you feel like you are the self-righteous, may the Lord by His Spirit warm your heart to see who you are, to be able to see that Christ is a worthy Savior who saves both beggars and the self-righteous, being from the Bible Belt, and I would say Kentucky somewhat the Bible Belt, It is harder to do ministry with those who are self-righteous than those who know without a shadow of a doubt, I don't love Jesus and I don't give a rip about who he is. And they might use more colorful language than that. It's easier to be able to do that than to be able to remind the self-righteous, you really don't know that you're continuing to worship the blood of bulls and goats and you've yet to fall and cling on Jesus. One way to figure that out is your heart truly transformed. It praises Jesus with joy and gladness. There was a song because I have at least three more minutes left. The farmer's market, uh, I play a Spotify playlist that uh, I didn't get to filter everything. And... um, When I hear words that shouldn't be on that playlist, I skip. But there was uh, a a song, and uh, it was it was going, and I was like, "What on earth?" And he started to say that he'd rather laugh with sinners than go to the church with sad people. It was total worldly song. Don't advocate for it. I don't even know what the title is. If a person off the street came in and observed us, our worship on a Sunday morning, our lives Monday through Saturday, would they be able to see, man, this person's glad in the Lord. You're joyful about their salvation. Or would they say like that singer, I'd rather laugh with sinners and go to church with those who are sad. In conclusion, I hope many of you know the name Martin Luther, the 16th century theologian who nailed the 95 theses to the castle door there in Wittenberg, Germany in 1517. Martin Luther started his own seminary, started many different publications, is largely responsible for what we know as the Protestant Reformation, that we trace our spiritual and theological lineage through. Martin Luther, as his days passed, he had multiple heart attacks, and he knew that he was unwell, but he continued to faithfully preach in the town in which he was born. One evening, 
as his sons were near him, Martin Luther breathed his last. And when they found in Luther's study, one of the last writings of Luther, remember who he is, writer of the 95 Theses, who split the Church of Rome, the Catholic Church, into this Protestant Reformation, would have had every right to be self-righteous. I'm Martin Luther. But what they found inscribed on Luther's piece of paper was this. We are beggars. That is the truth. Friends, we are beggars that need Christ. May we find ourselves looking to Him by faith alone into the good news that by faith alone, in Christ alone, there is hope for both beggars and the self-righteous. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for this truth of the Gospel, that You bring those who are far off and You sit them at Your table in Christ. Father, I pray that You would move among the hearts this morning that you would reveal by your spirit those who are the beggars and those who are the self-righteous. God, give us soft hearts to cling to Christ and him alone. And it is in his name we pray. Amen. Would you stand and sing as we respond?